Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Mary Rose for the penultimate of our weekly Down the Pub sessions. Happily, real pubs will soon be back. There's already changes afoot. Beth's hair colour has changed. Andy Dorman's cut his hair. He no longer looks like Frodo Baggins. He looks pretty sexual. Uh, Kate's wearing makeup. It's like the world has started again. It's mad. Anyway, we're here today because the last three weeks you have been submitting your votes for your greatest Britain. And now we're going to tell you who your top 10 are. So each of our top 10 will be announced tonight and then one of our regulars will advocate for them. Then to play devil's advocate, they have five minutes, by the way, strictly enforced. They get muted if they go over. Then devil's advocate, Andy Dorman, He's not British, are you? He's Irish. In no capacity. No. Which <laughs> he doesn't even like the British. Is that right? I wouldn't go that... For the sake of um, my cred, yes. I, I'm a raging anti-Brit. Yep. Anyway, so in that case, he is officially our Roast Master General tonight. It is his job to come in and trash each of... He's going to come in like the woke police and tell you all the mean things, like all the old ladies these people robbed and all the people they looked at funny and the stuff <coughs> they said that means they shouldn't win the Greatest Britain Award. Um, <clears throat> apart from one of them, and for good reason, he will not be roasting them, but he will be roasting people in association with one of our nominees because then they're, they're not allowed to be roasted. It's forbidden. Um, yeah. We also, as well, have a token yank here today. All right, John? I'm out here uh, representing Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah, uh, he, he's just got his microphone working. He was going to have to mime the life story of his person. Uh, right, okay, we're supposed to be going in alphabetical order, but Alina isn't ready because she's eating. Uh, so we're going to go to Beth first. I'm going to go in alphabetical order for our contributors because then it will be a surprise for you. So Beth, tell us who your person in the top 10 is and why people should vote for them. Right, okay, so I am going to be presenting for William Shakespeare today, and I'm going to be pushing forward why exactly Shakespeare should get your vote as the greatest Briton of all time. Uh, born in Stratford-upon-Avon, he's become a benchmark for the aspiring writer. During his lifetime, scredited with writing and co-authoring in some cases, 39 plays, 154 sonnets, two long narrative poems, and a few other pieces of verse. His plays have been translated into every major living language and are performed more often than those of any other playwright. 
Victorian word expert F. F. Max Muller estimated that Shakespeare used around 15,000 words just in his plays, a portion of which he invented himself. By contrast, Milton used 8,000 and the Old Testament is made up of 5,642. Meanwhile, an unschooled agricultural worker of the day would have said all that he had to say in around 300 words or so. Shakespeare has had probably the single biggest effect on the English language as we know it today. In a very broad sense, his works contributed to the standardisation of English language rules and grammar in the 17th and 18th centuries. The introduction of new words as well as phrases has greatly enriched the English language, which has made it more expressive and colourful. I'll be giving a series of examples now, but full disclosure, some of the words that he is um, alleged to have invented or coined weren't coined or invented by him, but citations in the Oxford English Dictionary have been attributed to him because the first recorded use was found in one of his works. So we'll start off with the first one, gloomy, which originally started out as a verb that he managed to turn into an adjective and used in Titus Andronicus. We all love to go on a rant, that's another word we can attribute to Shakespeare, first appearing in Hamlet. Some other words first used in his writings include eyeball, puking, addiction, disheartened, lonely, and many others as well. These new words barely highlight the contribution that Shakespeare has made to our lives. If you've ever been in a pickle, waited with bated breath, or gone on a wild goose chase, you've been quoting from The Tempest, Merchant of Venice and Romeo and Juliet, respectively. Next time you refer to jealousy as the green-eyed monster, know that you're quoting from Othello. The be-all and end-all is uttered by Macbeth, and fair play comes from the Tempest. If you've ever found yourself stating the following words to that special someone in your life, shall I compare thee to a summer's day, thou art more lovely and more temperate, then you have Shakespeare to thank for that help. And did I mention that he even invented the knock-knock joke in the Scottish play? Yep, that's right. In Act 2, Scene 3, a porter is awoken out of a drunken stupor by a knock-knock at Macbeth's door. Macbeth asks who's there, and the rest, as they say, is history. Shakespeare continues to be popular in theatre and film, with many of his plays being rehashed many times over. Some famous examples being... Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes, Much Ado About Nothing with Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson, and even the 90s classic Ten Things I Hate About You with Heath Ledger, which is based on the taming of the shrew. Indeed, many of the great actors of our time started their careers with Shakespeare, Helen Mirren, Patrick Stewart, Alan Rickman, and Ben Kingsley to name but a few, and trust me, I could go on with those names. Some of these actors came together on the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death to participate in what I believe is a hilarious rendition of the famous To Be or Not To Be. Tim Minchin, Benedict Cumberbatch, Harriet Walker, David Tennant, Rory Kinnear, Sir Ian McKellen, Dame Judi Dench and even the Prince of Wales, coaching the newest actor to play Hamlet, Papa Esiodou, on how to say that most famous of lines. During his 52 years on earth, Shakespeare enriched the English language in ways so profound that it's almost impossible to fully gauge his impact. Without him, our vocabulary would be just too different. He gave us uniquely vivid ways in which to express hope and despair, sorrow and rage, love and lust. His impact endures not only in the way we express ourselves, but how we experience and process the world around us. Had Shakespeare not given us the words, 
Would we truly feel bedazzled or gloomy? And could we grovel effectively or be properly sanctimonious had he not shown us how? Even if you've never read one of his sonnets or seen one of his plays, even if you've never so much as watched a movie adaptation, you're likely to still have quoted him unwittingly. He is impossible to avoid, and that is why Shakespeare should have your vote as the greatest Briton of all time. Oh, and she came in under time as well. Well done. But is it not just that his stuff survives? Say disclosure. Some of them yeah, yeah, but it's like it's the first time they mentioned credit for everyone that went before him to an extent. Yeah. And Ronnie, what do you reckon? I thought of him. <laughs> There is, a, there is always the, the question, I, I've, I did a little bit of Shakespeare at school and found him a little bit dull at the time, I have to say, but I think that was the ignorance of youth more than anything else. Um, I am, I've always been intrigued as to why he stands above everyone else. I know he was prolific, I know obviously his works are incredibly well known and are still performed to this day, but it's just, it's just intrigued me. I, I'm interested to hear answers as to why he stands out above all others when there were clearly lots of other playwrights around at the time um, I, remember, I think as well there's parallels that sort of show him lifting plot lines and things like yeah sharing plot lines with other people it's the plagiarism bit which which is slightly hazy right okay beth are you ready for shakespeare to get roasted oh, that's <laughs> <laughs> nothing you can say will change my mind so. okay go on Dorman. <laughs> Because, you know, I, when I saw King Arthur had made the top 30, I was surprised because I didn't realise fictional characters were allowed on the list. But now I see Shakespeare made the top 10, so clearly <laughs> we are able to make exceptions. I mean, physically, he looked like a tic-tac that had been dropped behind a couch. Uh, he's not that impressive. And even if he did exist, he was, as mentioned, an unoriginal hack. Even the name Hamlet is changing one letter of his tragically dead son. And if I were Hamlet, I'd be pretty fucking pissed that the play I'm named after is Hamlet. <laughs> Shakespeare's done more damage to the mental well-being of teenagers than computer games, pornography, and ISIS recruitment videos combined. I, my worst memories from school were my Shakespeare plays. They are so trash. And why is it that an unwritten suicide pact between two teenagers is considered romantic? Or an unwritten <laughs> suicide pact between a queen and a Roman general? Or an unwritten suicide pact between Othello and Desdemona? Like, what is wrong with Shakespeare? <laughs> I know, given the fact that he married someone 18 years older than him, it's not surprising that his views on romance are fairly warped and tend to rely on the woman dying. But nonetheless, it's <laughs> fairly fucked that we teach this to kids. And to be honest, I hope he is real, because I'd be far angry if someone I hadn't heard of or someone I actually respect, like Christopher Marlowe, had managed to pass off these wastes of paper as classic plays. Boom. Beth's, oh, Beth's gone red. Beth. Like, she's not having it she's like you cannot change my mind you cannot no absolutely not Shakespeare till I die <laughs> oh, team Marlowe with uh, Dorman I'm afraid anyone else got any comments on Shakespeare that's the first in your top 10 if you've been convinced by Beth you can now scuttle off and vote for Shakespeare as the greatest Britain if you've been more convinced by Andy's rant sorry the Roastmaster General uh then hold on because there's nine more for you to I like, I like that you used rant, Alex, when that was one of the examples I used as being a word from Shakespeare. Thank you very much. More did he steal it from someone else? <laughs> mm, this could go on forever, couldn't it? Right, okay, let's go to the next person alphabetically, which is Clive. And he wanted the most ridiculous one to make the top ten. 
So the most ridiculous person to make the top 10, thanks to the incessant efforts of certain Twitter groups with lots of followers, is... Who is it, Clive? That is entirely unfair and unkind and wrong. Mate, you wait, wait till Dorman gets onto this one. Go on, who is it? <laughs> John Ronald Royal Tolkien, who was born in 1892 and died in 1973, is without a doubt the personification of the greatest Britain ever. I say without a doubt, with clarity and with sincerity, because that is the case. When we look at British history, we look at the history mainly written about kings, about queens, princesses, about generals and other people who have gone around murdering people, or prime ministers who have starved millions to death. But the greatness of Britain is based upon ordinary people. And J.R.R. Tolkien was an extraordinary person, but also a very ordinary person who didn't crave the limelight, who did ordinary things and extraordinary things well. He represents normal people. He was born in South Africa, where his father had been gone out from Britain as a bank manager, but his father died very shortly after he got there. And so they came back to England, and he was brought up by his mother, who kindly for him converted to Catholicism and then died. Being left without a parent at a very young age, he was put into the guardianship of a local Catholic priest and thrived as a consequence. He served in the First World War and then went on to teach Anglo-Saxon literature. And just in that itself, he brought together the weight of English history through its Anglo-Saxon origins. And he wrote, and he wrote a number of long, weird and wonderful books. Books which were largely about nothing. People have tried to say they were anti-communist or they were anti-this or pro-that or anything else. But the fact is, his books are devoid of any political sentiment whatsoever. He was known for being anti-communist. He was known for being anti-Nazi. He was a moderate. He was the personification of an Englishman. He lived a quiet, normal, natural life. And then when the 1960s, lots of hippies got very excited about his books, he was a little bit taken aback. To start with, when people wrote to him saying they'd read his book and asking questions, he would pen nice little letters back to them. But after a while, all of this publicity got a little bit that much for him. And he gently retired down to Bournemouth. I mean, what could be more prosaic and normal than that? He was made a CBE a year before he died, but by that time, he was on his last legs. He wasn't a man who craved fame or fortune. He was a very normal man. But he was extraordinary, like so many normal people in our country have been extraordinary. He was extraordinary because he was so ordinary. And I think it's for that reason, out of the 10 people put forward, he really stands out as probably the best personification of a British person. And in that role, he surely deserves to win, rather than prime ministers or princes, 
generals or concubines or whoever, people who put themselves about, who went round raping and pillaging the rest of the whole of the world. No, he only did good. He brought joy to people's lives and is a decent fellow. He's the only one on this list who's currently going through the process of um, towards canonization, which is something as well. So, yeah, J.R.R. Tolkien, absolutely top-notch chap and a jolly good British person too, and he should certainly win this. Um, well done. I'm tempted to say the Germans he shot at wouldn't agree with you about the uh, only doing nice things. And I, don't, I don't think he shot at very many Germans. He got trench fever pretty quickly and was invalided back to England. I like what you tried to do there. Uh, Marcus's face just said bollocks the whole way through that. <laughs> it was great. Just a thought. Uh, go on, Lockie. He was a signals officer in the First World War, wasn't he? He was probably directing artillery fire, so he probably killed hundreds, if not thousands, of Germans, actually. I'll just leave you with that. <laughs> he was <laughs> in the Lancashire Fusiliers. <laughs> oh, Holmes, you're on mute. No, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, in a way, despite what Lockie said, Clive was right, because he didn't shoot any. I mean, raining down massive curtains of shells, <laughs> a completely different kettle of fish. <laughs> Oh, right, Clive, are you ready to be roasted? Andy's been looking forward to this one. Go on. Oh, man, fuck talking. Another childhood trauma for me. Um, <laughs> I didn't realise writing four books for nerds gets you a spot on the greatest Britain of all time list. Well, here we are. Um, so he's got some fantastically terrible quotes. I warn you, if you bore me, I shall take my revenge. Amazed you didn't die of suicide then. Um, <laughs> Tolkien writes like a first year philosophy student. I think is the best way of putting it. May the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. The fuck does that even mean? <laughs> like, you want to say this guy had a balanced worldview. The bad guys in his books lived in the East, were supposed to be corrupted versions of Western beings, had slanted eyes and swarthy complexions. Yes, that is the view of a man who would all life is equal. In a way, I guess he does embody Britishness in that particular <laughs> period, in a certain way. Tolkien, he also has done more damage to New Zealand culture than Captain Cook and COVID-19 combined. Um, <laughs> it, but by far his greatest crime is this nerd culture. And I speak as a member of said culture. Um, for every proposal in Elvish custom art piece and New Zealand ad campaign, Tolkien has a lot to feck and answer for. And finally, as you said, yes, he rallied against Nazi Germany in later life. But as mentioned by the others, he also did serve in World War I which means statistically he is one of the few people on this list who would have had an opportunity to kill Hitler. And the fact that he didn't proves he's an imperialist fascist scumbag. <laughs> I love it. Um, does, does the Tolkien Society do fatwas? He, do you know what? He texted me when I said Tolkien is in the top 10. He texted me back saying it's my mission to get banned from the fucking Tolkien Society. And I'm not even a member. I think... That might have done it. <laughs> Clive, anything to say? Um, oh, it's all fairly reasonable criticism. <laughs> I must confess that I haven't actually read any Tolkien since I was about 11 years old when I read The Hobbit. I never got round to the bigger one that came afterwards. But um, I know lots of people who play Dungeons and Dragons as a consequence. <laughs> that's not, that's not helping the case at all that one. it's vindicated everything I just well, no, it keeps them off the streets Johnny it keeps them off the streets <laughs>
put it this way, his books were so boring yes. they had to do the slightly more interesting one into movies first, and then they the movies put people to sleep. The Lord, of the, the Lord of the Rings came as a result of re- requests for a sequel to yeah. The Hobbit. 1954. Uh, no. So, Dormant, oh, okay. need to find out who requested that sequel. <laughs> No, we shouldn't. Version of Genesis, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he he wrote them on the back of an exam script, which just shows he was also a shit tutor. So, yeah. Well, I wonder he I, was I, a tutor at Clive School when he was doing that. No, no, his his son taught me, but uh, apparently he had gone round to stay with his son and had written some of his book in the classroom that I used to study in. Well. Right, if you're not convinced thus far. He was voted the 92nd Greatest Britain in a poll conducted by the BBC in 2002. So I that, think it's, that poll. But, uh, but if you think about it, that's, that's the second. But you've actually had to knock down the statues of about 884 of the ones above him. So that's moved him up the list straight away. Including Sunita and Timmy Mallet. Yeah. <laughs> I've just had a thought about the First World War thing again. Um, I just, just thinking about it, Hitler's Battle of the Somme was pretty short, wasn't it? He basically uh, arrived with his um, regiment at Bapalm on a train, got off the train, started walking towards the front, and then a British shell came over. Whack, he gets hit by a piece of shrapnel. So it's possible that Co- Tolkien actually came as close to anyone. Yeah. Oh, well, that puts him way up the bottom. He's still fucking bold. <laughs> he was also voted 35th in South African Broad- Broadcasting Corporation's Great South Africans. Okay, so there's a chance he's not even British. And is, that, is that what we're doing next week, Alex? Uh, no. <laughs> next week, do join in because we are going to be talking you through our top 10 biggest twats in history before we reveal the winner of this. Um, but let's move on. Right, this is the one that for obvious reasons will not be roasted, although Dorman will still get a shot because we want yeah, we want to laugh at a few people that have associated themselves with it. But um, the unknown soldier has made the top ten, which I quite like. And Holmes, you're gonna rep him. Yeah, this greatest Britain is unique. He's a person, but unlike all of the other candidates, he's not identifiable. He's made it into the top ten, not necessarily because of who he is, but because of what he represents. Mike, the Unknown Warrior is the body of an unknown British combatant from the Great War that was exhumed from the battlefields of the Western Front and buried amongst kings and queens in the noble surroundings of Westminster Abbey. The idea for the Unknown Warrior came from the Reverend David Railton when he was serving on the Western Front as an army chaplain to the 2nd Battalion of the Honourable Artillery Company. During the First World War, Railton actually won a military cross for rescuing men under heavy fire on the Somme. Relton first had the idea when he returned to his billets near Armentier one evening and saw that a grave had been dug in the small garden. On closer inspection, he noticed that on the cross that had been erected over the grave, someone had written in deep black pencil letters, an unknown British soldier, and in brackets beneath, of the Black Watch. Relton started thinking about how the return of this unknown soldier to Britain could give comfort to their loved ones, friends and family, and it was a thought that he would return to throughout the conflict. After the war, Relton moved to Margate in Kent and became a vicar. Despite almost two years having passed since the armistice, he continued to think about his unknown soldier idea. And in August 1920, he wrote to the Dean of Westminster, the very Reverend Herbert Ryle, suggesting the idea of an unknown soldier as a permanent memorial to those soldiers who fell in the Great War and had no known grave. Ryle was initially intrigued by Relton's suggestion, but couldn't make any promises. 
but he took on Ralton's idea, and after weeks of discussions with the government and the king, he was able to confirm to Ralton on the 18th of November 1920 that his idea had been approved. An unknown soldier would be brought back to England and placed in Westminster Abbey to represent all those who fell. The Army and the RAF had many casualties on the Western Front, but so did the Navy. The Royal Naval Division provided a number of infantry battalions made up from men originally from the Navy. On the 7th of November 1920, four exhumation parties were sent out to recover one set of remains from graves marked as unknown soldiers from a cemetery at Ypres, Arras, the Somme and the Aisne, the four sectors where the British Army had served on the Western Front. These exhumation parties operated independently and had not been informed of the reasons why they were recovering the bodies. Once exhumed, the remains were placed into sacks and transferred to St Paul, where they were once again examined to ensure they were British and that no name, regiment or other means of identification could be ascertained. At midnight, Brigadier General Wyatt was informed that the four bodies had been laid out for selection. He entered the room and laid his hand on one of them. The unknown warrior had been selected. The chosen remains were placed in a coffin and at midday on the 8th of November, the coffin was placed in a motor ambulance and driven to Boulogne with a military escort. On arrival at Boulogne at 3pm on the 9th of November, the unknown warrior was placed in a temporary chapel. Later that evening, his remains were transferred to a two-inch thick oak coffin lined with, lined with zinc. The oak came from a tree that had stood in the grounds of Hampton Court. The coffin lid was sealed with iron bands and a crusader's sword from the king's private collection was laid on top. The following morning, the coffin was removed from the chapel as it commenced its journey back to England. The Cortes moved through the streets of Boulogne, and various French dignitaries and military figures, including Marshal Foch, paid their respects before it was carried aboard HMS Verdun for transportation across the Channel. The ship slipped out of Boulogne Harbour at 11.45 on the 10th of November and headed towards Dover. Midway, it met up with a flotilla of French ships and ships from the Royal Navy before arriving in Dover at 3.45pm. All vantage points around the harbour had been taken, and most of the shops in the town had closed and flags flew at half-mast. The final stretch of the journey to London would be by train. The unknown warrior was placed in a specially decorated passenger luggage van. It was the same luggage van that had carried the bodies of Edith Cavill and Captain Charles Fryatt. Edith Cavill was a nurse working in Belgium who was executed by the Germans in October 1915 after helping British soldiers to escape. Fryatt was the captain of a steamship who became famous after he successfully rammed a German U-boat. He was captured by the Germans at a later date, identified shot for piracy before his remains were exhumed and returned to Britain in 1919. At 5.50pm, the boat train pulled away and headed to Victoria Station by Canterbury. Thousands turned out at train stations that lined the route to pay their respects. At just after half past eight in the evening, the carriage was in place at Victoria Station and it remained there overnight with a guard of honour provided by soldiers from the Grenadier Guards, whilst large crowds started to assemble outside. The crowds continued to grow in size, and by the following morning, along the route to the cenotaph, it was more than six or seven deep in places. At 9.20am, the coffin was placed on a gun carriage drawn by six black horses of the Royal Horse Artillery and adorned with the Union flag that David Relton had used on the Western Front, a steel helmet and the field items of a British Tommy. The procession then moved through Westminster before arriving at the cenotaph, where it was greeted by King George V, who placed a wreath of red roses and bay leaves on the coffin. At 11am, the king unveiled the cenotaph and the two-minute silence commenced. Once the silence had ended, the unknown warrior started the final leg of his journey as the gun carriage moved off towards Westminster Abbey, with the king and other high-ranking military officials following behind. The queen and other dignitaries were already seated in the abbey, along with a thousand widows and mothers who had lost their sons. When the coffin arrived, it was carried into the abbey between 96 men split into two lines. All had received some form of gallantry medal, 77 of them the Victoria Cross. 
The Dean of Westminster, in the presence of the Archbishop of Canterbury, started the service, with the King standing at the head of the grave. The unknown warrior was laid to rest in the Abbey at 11.20am. The coffin was then covered in earth and being brought over from France. Immediately after the service, a temporary cover was placed over the grave and four sentries, one from each of the armed services, was placed around the grave. By the end of the day, on the 11th of November 1920, some 200,000 people had visited the tomb of the unknown warrior. At the end of the first week, the tomb was permanently covered with a slab of engraved marble from Belgium. And just two weeks later, over one and a half million people had paid their respects to the unknown warrior. When the Queen Mother got married in the Abbey in 1923, she laid her wedding bouquet on the grave as a mark of respect. Since then, all royal brides married in the Abbey have sent back their bouquets to be laid on his grave. The Unknown Warrior is not only a fitting tribute to all those that fell in the war, but he provided a small degree of comfort to those that had lost a loved one or a friend whose body had not been recovered. It allowed each and every one of them to believe that it could be their husband, father, son or brother lying there in Westminster Abbey amongst royalty. This and the response that he elicited when he was originally brought back to England and buried in the Abbey shows beyond doubt why the Unknown Warrior is the greatest Briton. Um, yeah, we're not going to roast the Unknown Warrior for obvious reason, but Dorman? Yeah, I, I mean, well told, Holmes. That was really, really good. I think it would be incredibly disrespectful too. All I'm going to say on the matter is that the level of colossal ignorance surrounding these fucking morons who decide to conduct fascist salutes next to his grave is just some of the most spectacular cognitive dissidents I've ever seen. And mm -hmm. if you don't acknowledge how stupid they are, I don't think you can acknowledge how respectful that particular you know, story is. So, and hilariously as well, as they do their Hitler salutes, Holmes, there's a chance he's a fucking Indian. Well, there is. I mean, he could be Irish. I am um, just, uh, just one interjection. The, the notion of, of various mothers who'd lost sons and husbands and so forth um, sitting in Westminster Abbey as this, um, as this chap was wheeled in is, is really quite an astonishingly powerful thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they still... Um, People were still asking, weren't they, if it could possibly be. I mean, can you tell this about him? Can you tell that about him? Like, desperate people wanting mm. to know, like, my son was short and stocky. Do you think it could be him? And, yeah, awful. But um, what a concept. Um, and obviously Italy have one as well, don't they, with the most subtle of all monuments to the unknown soldier, the one in Italy and Rome. Uh, there's, yeah. one, there's one just outside Red Square on the wall to the Kremlin for the Russian unknown yeah. soldier but probably from the yeah. Second World War. So something that caught on around the globe. Right, on that note, we'll go refill our drinks and then we'll come back and uh, resume what we usually do, taking the piss out of it. We are back after that sombre look at the history of the Unknown Soldier. What a great contender for Greatest Britain and a great symbolic contender. I really like that. Um, I think you're doing well so far, Holmes. Let's move on to someone who... So we started this because the 2002 BBC poll was shit um basically oliver cromwell made the top <laughs> 10 and i've been incensed for the last 18 years and now i'm getting my own back by running my own poll um one thing that's happened is that this person has gone up quite a long way ahead of um where they ranked in 2002 and i think it's largely because people are starting to give them the credit that they're due is that right james oh absolutely i mean this choice I mean, it wasn't till 2013 that he was officially pardoned for his crime, among other things. And his crime to, um, being homosexual, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah, I mean, and now there's a law in place because of him. So the person I'm on about is Alan Matheson Turing, 
Most people will widely know him as being the person that cracked or broke the Enigma code, but he was more than that. He was a mathematician, computer scientist, logician, cryptologist, philosopher, theoretical biologist, so Kit would love him. I mean, this guy is the biggest nerd out, but also probably the smartest person on this list. And no bet, I dispute William Shakespeare being smart. So <laughs> during the Second World War, he was obviously part of the code-breaking centre that produced ultra-intelligence. He led HUT-8, which broke the naval codes. Now, people misunderstanding it, but they think once it was broken, it was broken. It was not necessarily. He created the or co-created the bomb, which worked on a previous Polish work. It was basically an early computer, automatic computing engine. Um, he just this machine allowed Enigma to be decoded. But what would happen with the Battle of the Atlantic? The codes would change, so you'd have a few months one side being able to read, and then suddenly you have to work it all out again. Um, he's also probably the not the father, but he was one of the early components of AI, artificial intelligence. So I'm wondering whether this is part of the Roast Master General's um, roast later on. We shall see. He also worked for the National Physics Laboratory after the war. And reasons probably why he ranked so lowly on the 2002 list is his work was largely unknown because of the Official Secrets Act. And all the work and advancements he'd done that he's known for now, we just didn't know about because of his work. I mean, this guy, it's hard to describe how amazing this person is and just be known for one thing. I mean, where is it? Is it this is me being a bit unprepared <laughs> today. He's just so smart. Like, his teacher referred to him as a genius. Uh, that's definitely true. Uh, a complex code-breaking technique he named Turing-J as well. He also created a chess program, the first artificial chess program in 1950. Some people will argue for Wellington. Some will argue for Nelson because of Napoleon. But this was the guy that led the effort to crack the code, which helped shorten World War II by two years saved over 14 million lives, helped defeat Hitler, helped defeat probably a worse fate for most of the world. It's not just the initial 14 million lives, I'd say. He was anti-war initially. Obviously, he can... And he was part of the anti-war council at King's College. So for a, probably what's a conscientious objector and anti-war to then work to end the war in such a way and put aside his beliefs. Um, but also with his homosexuality, he was meant to marry one of the other code breakers he worked with. Um, but because of his steadfast homosexuality, he actually decided against it because he thought it would be unfair on her, which is probably the most British thing I've ever seen. And yeah, this... Alan Turing, he's just, he saved, broke the Enigma code, created so many wonderful things. The reasons we have computers today and the reason we can do all this during lockdown, which I think is an added bonus. But yeah, it's not a great argument the way I've done it, but it's, it's unexplainable, this guy. That's just the way I can only describe it.
Any more Turing comments? Uh, yeah, I mean, there was another uh, type computer type device made at uh, Fletchley Park called Colossus that was more powerful than Enigma, and it was used to crack German um, cipher codes. It was invented by a bloke called Tommy Flowers and Frank Morrell. I think it was regarded as more complex than the Enigma thing. And although Turing made a great contribution and was appallingly treated later on, he seems to get the limelight compared to these other two guys. Yeah, let's see what the Roastmaster has to say on that. Yeah. yeah Alan Turing, <laughs> fucking nerd. Like, even I reckon I could steal Alan Turing's lunch money. Um, <laughs> his, his work was largely unknown, James, is because he stole most of it. Uh, he epitomizes a, a, quite a common British attitude of claiming to be the first person to do things and then pasting Union flags all over it. So there's a, a list of people he borrowed ideas from. You've got Charles Babbage, obviously, Jarl Waldemar Lindbergh, Kirk Godel, Alonzo Church, Tommy Flowers, as mentioned. Um, and you've got some Polish names. Alina, I apologize in advance for what I'm about to say. Uh, Marian Ryubski, Henry Zygalski, Jerzy Rosicki, all of which he gave very little credit for. Um, his Wikipedia page says he had a reputation for eccentricity, which assuming this is the same kind of reputation that Stephen Hawking had. He was probably a dick. Um, and yes, the Enigma code is very impressive, but the fact that Pauls had done most of the work for it kind of undermines that claim. And the worst of all, had he cracked the code faster, we probably wouldn't have had to reroute ships from India um, to maintain British convoys across the Atlantic. So technically, the Bengal famine is his fault. Ooh. Ooh. I'm, I'm oh, very... John is going to, for obvious reasons, a little bit later on, John is going to use that. He's writing it down right now. <laughs> <laughs> to be Even fair, I did mention he worked it. on the previous Polish work. Oh, no, for sure. For sure. But yeah. that's why. Cool. He's quite a hard one to roast. Well done for trying. Um, okay. Alina. Yeah. You better do this one proud. She's been nice to me. She's epic. That's, that's all I'm, to be honest, all I should argue is she's frigging and fucking epic. That, that should be my argument. But it I'm going to argue a little bit more. So I'm doing the amazing, awesome, kick-ass Queen Elizabeth II. Boom. Right, so first of all, the line should be, she should win because she's the queen. Simple. Thank you very much. Goodbye. But no, I'm going to keep going. There's quite a few lefties in the room that are going to want more, I'm afraid. I'm sorry, I don't care. She is awesome. Anyway, I've so argued for Tolkien and is currently eating his pasta, so just fuck him. It's okay. <laughs> I am going to. I don't care. We can't roast this woman. She's awesome. So she, out of like the whole world of ever existence, she's the fourth longest reigning monarch. So 68 years and 146 days today. So, like, that's probably older than you, me, and Beth put together. Really? I think, if my maths is correct. L Lockie, but, but not close. Lockie's holding up a sign that says, yay, not dying. Let her get to the point. Oh, my God, you're so rude. Anyway, I wasn't doing this. Well, I might be doing it when you're doing it yours. Anyway, moving on. So, the Queen was born on the 21st of April, 1926. Funny enough, she was born on the same year as my grandmother. My grandmother is awesome. The Queen is awesome. Awesome people were born in 1926. She actually wasn't meant to be Queen, but after the abdication of her uncle, Edward VIII, I've got it right this time, Alex, her father, <laughs> her father ascended the throne. So, therefore she became in line. But at the time, they thought um, the king, the queen might have more kids. So again, she wasn't quite thought of as the next reigning monarch. 
the really awesome stuff is she actually does stuff from the Second World War. The problem is, is that when the uh, Second World War kicks off in 1939, ministers are like, yeah, let's evacuate the royal family just in case. And the Queen's like, no, no, we're going to stay. We're going to stay here. So in 1940, she makes her first radio broadcast addressing other evacuated children because she herself was evacuated to Scotland. She desperately wanted to go to war and to help, but she was only 14 at the time, so she couldn't really do much. So when she turned 18, she ended up training as a truck driver and a mechanic in the Auxiliary Territorial Service. I mean, come on, a truck driver and a mechanic. Our queen is a trained truck driver. I know. How epic is that? Our queen. I mean, normal people, yeah, whatever. But she's the queen. I mean, come on. Anyway, so she's the only female royal to join the armed forces. Again, in itself, awesome. On a day with her sister, she mixed among the crowds in London anonymously. So she got to experience what it was like amongst the subjects. She marries Prince Philip on the 20th of November, 1947. They're still married so many years later. She then ascends the throne on the 2nd of June, 1953. Okay, so enough about her background. Let's talk about why she is like the coolest person ever. So she donates a lot of money from her own pocket. She is a patron of over 500 UK charities in the UK, but over 3,000 in the Commonwealth. She has devoted her life to her people. The really cool thing I found out, listen to this. So when she got married, just before she got married, she paid for her own wedding dress using war ration coupons. I mean, how cool is that? I love it. She doesn't have to pay taxes, but she chooses to. She survived an intruder in her bedroom on the 9th of July, 1982. Basically, he scaled over the wall, up the pipe, into her bedroom, sat on her bed, and they had this chat. They had this long chat before security apprehended him. Alex, you're going to like this one. his ass, I would have thought, but yeah. You're going to like this next one, Alex. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. She's a gin drinker. Boom. Sold. She is a gin drinker, but she also has an incredible sense of humour. She does. This is true. She's, she's, to be honest, with all the drama that's gone on in that royal family, especially recently, she's just been so regal about it. She's kept stability for her whole family, especially while other royal houses were being removed from power. For example, Greece. It's, it's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. Well, I don't know. It might exist. I don't know. Um, <laughs> she has, <clears throat> she's got an awesome colour style. I mean, I don't care if you mock, because I know you lot were mocking her dress earlier. I don't care. This woman is 90 years old and she has the coolest fashion sense for a night. Like she's coming out in bright yellow. I mean, come on, bold, beautiful colors. And then this is the best one. So obviously we can't count 2020 because it's been a shit year and filled with coronavirus. So instead we're going to look at 2019. In 2019, she is a 93 year old woman, right? 93. And she took part in 295 engagements 295 engagements for a 93 year old woman it's true which is more than william which more than william more than more everyone than except i believe that year prince charles who did 500 odd and 521 princess anne which did 506 yeah. so they're the only two royals that have outdone the queen okay and they're both in their 60s and the woman is 93 years old so there we go the queen the best one ever 
any of you get all Republican on my ass, Clive. I'm muting you. <laughs> Let me go to her house and go through her stuff. Therefore, she is immune from all of you, except, unfortunately, the Roastmaster General. The guy who lives in a republic. Yeah. But don't believe him. <laughs> Nobody believe him because the Queen is awesome. End of. I don't right. think he's actually going to trash the Queen. I think, go on, tell me, no, no, no. I've seen so, your so, list. Yeah, I mean, Elizabeth, II, or to give her her proper title, Kaiser and Elizabeth von Saxe-Coburg-Gotha. Um, <laughs> <laughs> your economy has been hit so hard, you've had to outsource your monarchy to Germany. Um, so she... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I'm tempted to bring up your fucking idiot king you mentioned the other week and the servant telling him who it was and him running around without a head afterwards. But yeah, ah, Brian Baru. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but he was old, so we'll, we'll allow it, apparently. Um, <laughs> so she's the fourth longest reigning monarch, so she's what, Tottenham Hotspur last year? Not that impressive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> can we just, can we just, is it finished 2 0? <laughs> no, 3 1. 3 1. Yeah. Excellent. Exactly. What, need, need I say more? Um, it, what does it say about Britain as a country that the greatest achievement of the only woman that was deemed by your general public worthy of being on this list is not dying? Um, her greatest crime so far has been her refusal to bury her husband, who by the look of him died 10 years ago. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, gosh. Uh, I mean, you want to talk about stability, Alina? Really? St- do you call that royal house stable? As I said, her husband has been pre-embalmed using nothing but racism. Her son really enjoys Pizza Express. Um, <laughs> and Prince Edward looks like he's made out of clay and is about to ask Gromit for some cracking cheese. Truly, <laughs> oh, truly, the royals are a treasure. <laughs> and as Kit point, uh, as pointed out on our chat function. David Starkey likes her, which is not a brag in anyone's book. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not even go there. If anyone needs a roasting, Dorman, you can have a go at him later as well. If you oh, want that's my nomination for next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, how ironic that history's biggest as, turned out to be a historian. As <laughs> I've just I've just noted on the chat they also named a massively overrated band after her. I will release by the time you've listened to this, numbers ten to a hundred and you will find out that Johnny's very bitter because Freddie Mercury has finished way ahead of David Bowie. Right. It's because the public have no taste. Says you. Don't start on my Freddie, otherwise I'll mute you. Okay. <laughs> Next. Oh, we're getting on to a couple now that I'm really excited about because uh this one caused a little bit of uh Grief in the last... Uh, do you know what I love? I love that despite all of that fucking nonsense all over Twitter and all of the statue bashing, who comes in streaming into the top 10 with absolutely no question whatsoever. John? A man who I paid Andy Dorman quite a lot of money not to bash in his repost. Uh, We've talked about greatness as if the criteria for greatness were self-evident. But I'd like to propose a criteria for greatness that asks the question, how many people owe their lives to this person? I'm referring to Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill. Uh, And any person for whom you don't get remembered for winning the Nobel Nobel, uh, Prize for Literature, you're not really remembered as the head of defense, admiralty, exchequer, and half a dozen other prominent government positions, only marginally remembered for being 
inspiring to millions in the United States, the UK and elsewhere, inspiring names ranging from John Winston Lennon to Jonathan W. Jordan. Um, but, but somebody who, as, as Alina mentioned about the Queen, and this is a quote, actually did stuff in the Second World War. So let's talk <laughs> about what he actually did in the Second World War. And for that, I'd like to take us back to the spring of 1940, the period of May 10th to June 18th, from the time Churchill was uh, appointed prime minister to uh, June 18th, the day of his finest hour speech. Uh, that was a time when Britain could have gone in either direction against Nazi Germany. Uh, Germ the Germans appeared to be ascendant on the, on the continent. Uh, Germany was rolling through France. And from May 25th through 28th, Churchill was locked in a battle with his leadership over whether the country would continue to oppose Hitler or whether it would seek peace terms. Uh, as, as we've seen portrayed in a number of movies, uh, he reached out to the outer cabinet and said, I think it was, if this Long Island story of ours is to end at last, let it end only when each of us lies choking in his own blood. It was Churchill primarily whose force of will enabled the country to keep pushing on. Now, let's talk about what would happen if Churchill had not been there, if let's say Halifax had been the, uh, the man of the hour and had uh, done what he proposed, which was reaching peace with Hitler through, through Italian uh, mediation. The German terms would likely have been not extremely harsh, but they certainly at a minimum would have limited the strength and growth of the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force. There would be no Lend-Lease as actually happened in early 1941. There would be no destroyers acquired by the Royal Navy and uh, Britain's military would have been stagnant rather than growing through American aid, uh, which would have been politically impossible in the Roosevelt administration. Uh, to turn about that course of, of, of appeasement, Britain would have had to have rid itself of Halifax or whomever the, appease, uh, the, the, the peace faction leader was. It would have had to have mentally prepared to go back to war, a war that it had pulled out of, a war that Churchill declared that nations that lose can rise up, but nations that surrender do not come back. And it would have had to have had the political will to declare war and get the United States back involved. That would not have happened in 1940 or 1941 at a minimum. Most likely there would have been no bombing campaign against Germany beginning in 1940 and 41. There would not have been a big bomber fleet based in the British Isles. Hitler in 1941 would have had an entirely free hand against the Soviet Union. He would have pushed the Soviets back further than he had, not having to watch his back, and lengthened the war. Potentially, Hitler would have been able to knock the Soviet Union out of the war. Because as historians like James Lacey have pointed out, while 80% of the German troops were killed on the Eastern Front, by the Red Army and Red Air Force, 80% of Germany's industrial capacity was directed at the Western Allies through things like air defense. So Hitler would have had a longer time to extend his hold over the continent. There would have been no staging ground for the reconquest of the continent through the British Isles in 1943 and 1944. On the other side of the world, America would have become enmeshed in a war with Japan and it would have been harder to muster the political will to ally with the United States. For that reason, 
World War II without the resolution of Winston Churchill would have been expected to have extended into 1946, 1947 or later. And in a war where 72 million people died, an average of 16.6 million people per year, 32 million or more perhaps would have perished, would have reasonably been expected to perish in that extended war because Britain's space as the unsinkable aircraft carrier was denied to the Western allies. Churchill, of course, had many, many uh, honors. Uh, he was a fierce anti-communist who inspired the West to stand up to uh, the Soviet Union. Um, and as I said before, he had won a, a, prize for, a Nobel Prize for Literature. Uh, he inspired people. He even made nice paintings. Of course, with anybody who's been in that in, in a position of power for a long time, you're sort of like uh, Ardbeg Scotch. You're kind of an acquired taste. Some like you, some don't. But it is hard to deny that without the British contribution led by Churchill and with the line held from May 25th to May 28th, 1940, there are a lot of people who would not be walking around after the war's end that were. So that is my proposal for the greatest Briton of all time, a man who is famously called half American and all British. Well done. Is uh, the W in your name really for Winston? It is. My dad, uh, I was born in 1967. Uh, my dad, a, a redneck uh, pilot from Mississippi, uh, was, uh, was thought that Winston Churchill was a, an impressive figure. Um, any comments before we get to the roast master? Um, I'm, just, I'm just curious about the, the point that Clive has posted. He also used to build walls because he fancied himself a brick, as a bricklayer. Each night they would dismantle his day's work and rebuild. Where on earth does that come from? It's, it's true. He was, he was, it was actually like accepted into something like the Guild of British um, Bricklayers as well. <laughs> That's he, like King George and his stamps. Something you can just switch your brain off and focus yeah. on nothing. Yeah, he did it at, uh, at Chartwell. He used to uh, build walls in the garden and then uh, bring them back down again. You make your own uh, entertainment okay. in rural Kent, don't you? But, but sadly, his bricklaying, <laughs> was as, his bricklaying was as good as his painting and his writing. No, writing writing's a lot better than his painting. His Clive, painting's you did not get to come on for Tolkien's writing and Churchill's. <coughs> he was a superb historian. Yeah, look at you. You're blushing now. You're like, oh no, where do I do? Where do I look? He was a good right. painter as well. I mean, I think he's a better painter than Hitler was, and Hitler's known as a painter. Hitler was a shit painter. Hitler was shit painter. Could we put <laughs> Churchill down as a better writer than uh, Shakespeare? Yeah, because I know he's <laughs> yeah. well, He got his Nobel Prize for it. What does William Shakespeare ever get? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of bored school children and... Uh, Beth, <laughs> Beth just lobbed the bowl she's eating. Beth's a bit of I'm getting all right here. I'm getting all right. <laughs> <laughs> Beth was quietly eating her dinner and now she's on the side of Mate, you've made her go proper. Did you hear how West, Country, uh, West Midlands she went then when she got angry? <laughs> I, I hope she was. I hope she was getting irate at the at the, at the uh, Shakespeare thing, and not the fact that Hitler was a shit painter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to clarify, I think she was. <laughs> right. Stole the language. I'm, I'm, I'm saving. Can't, can't beat an angry yam yam. <laughs> I'm saving. I'm saving the shout of fight for another time, but it's getting close. <laughs> right, Kit has just pointed out fave fact about Churchill. Special brew was invented in his honour. Least fave fact: he designed the flag of Qatar who kind of have a casual relationship with human rights. But what has <laughs> the Roastmaster General got to say about Winston Churchill? 
bearing in mind this is my granddad apparently you're talking about according to most of twitter well, i can only apologize um yeah this one was quite easy to write for um like i was under the impression that he didn't switch off his brain during the bricklaying it was more so during his political career um <laughs> imagine screwing up a naval landing so catastrophically that two countries declare it a national day of remembrance and mourning this is true need mm. i say more Gallipoli the only explanation for Gallipoli. his fault yeah the only explanation for Gallipoli is churchill was such an imperialist he decided to try and make the ottoman empire relevant again <laughs> and they say that going after someone for their physical appearance is low-hanging fruit fair enough though that's probably something churchill never picked because he was a fat bastard <laughs> the half american that john mentioned was probably his gut um <laughs> like churchill churchill wanted to fight them on the beaches as what a barrage balloon like the real hero of his career was the horse that carried him at the battle of Omdurman. like i don't think stalin had a fear of flying i think he had a fear of being in a plane with churchill um, <laughs> and churchill was so fat that if he flew ryanair today he'd clap if the plane took off now, <laughs> <laughs> in his capacity as a fat bastard uh, it's worth touching on the bengal famine something i mentioned earlier what sort of prick looks at world war ii and thinks yeah we can fit more pointless death and suffering in that this is it's just not nearly enough like okay we haven't developed anti-submarine tactics so as a result of this we're going to starve a continent that seemed perfectly reasonable I mean, the most egregious issue with him, though, is that he was viciously incompetent. He had six years of decent performance, and then everything before and after that went to complete shit. If I had six weeks of performance, I would have lost my of shit performance. I would have lost my job at McDonald's when I was in college. But yet, no, he gets a pass because apparently six years of incompetence makes up for it. And finally, and most importantly, given the year that we're having, Churchill presided over countless war crimes. Um, among his many immolation projects was the city of Cork in 1920. So given the anniversary that it is and the year that's in it, I think we should all come together and call him what he is, a colossal dick. You don't like Cork, though. <laughs> yeah, but I like the people. <laughs> I just, just, just as a sort of a small observation, are you going to change Andy's name and kind of disguise his voice when this goes out? No. Because <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a lot of loons out there that are not going to be happy with that at all. Uh, I, think, I think, to be, to be fair, he nicked all that fat stuff from the BBC Great Britain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, 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 to be fair, Andy's Irish, and Churchill didn't exactly have a great record with the Irish, so... No, basically, because everyone in history has shat on the Irish, he can pretty much say what he wants and no one can have a go at it. <laughs> yeah, basically, I, I, vengeance. I don't think I've said anything that is, uh, that is incorrect either, so... <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you forgot to add the Norwegian campaign, the oh, naval yeah. losses there, yeah. that was a... Ugh. I, well, I, Roosevelt I, said when Roosevelt, uh, Roosevelt said at one point that Churchill has about 400 ideas a day of which maybe three of them are good. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah. Unfortunately, things like reverting (laughs) to the gold standard and shooting minors were some of his bad ideas that he implemented. Shut up, no. we don't need any of your lessons. No, like that. The, the, the one bad <laughs> idea I can time. remember that was made a movie was about two dentists that decided to go on a sabotage um, thing to German-occupied France by themselves. And uh, then Churchill thought, oh, that's a good idea, let's train them up. <laughs> and obviously, Isn't that Carry On movie? Obviously, he, no, he, no, it's not. It's an he invented, movie. According to the movie, he invented the, the idea of the crap focus group by getting on the tube and talking to the general public. Right, you lot, leave him alone. Oh, right. Beth's just happy that no one's ribbing Shakespeare anymore, fraud that he was. Uh, let's move on to someone. Uh, this, to be honest, is, is where my boat goes. And as soon as you hear who's here to speak for them, you'll know that it's going to have a naval connection. Kate Jameson. Hi. <laughs> Who are you my... for? I am speaking on behalf of Horatio Nelson, as if anyone is surprised. <laughs> so Nelson was born in Norfolk in 1758. He's probably one of the most famous naval officers in the world. He worked his way through the ranks of the Royal Navy pretty quickly. Uh, after his family members thought the best thing for him was to have his head blown off by round shot, which isn't the best start to your career. Um, As a commander, he was known for his bold actions and more than occasional disregard of his orders given from his senior officers. Um, He was famous for breaking away from using, I guess, unimaginative tactics in battle. And then, of course, for winning crucial victories at the Nile in 1798, for example, um, where they fought the French into the night, annihilated the fleet, and that basically meant that the French lost all hopes of securing a direct trade route to India. He was wounded in battle a number of times, including at the Nile. Um, He lost the sight in one of his eyes in Corsica. Didn't wear an eye patch afterwards. I'm just going to throw that one in there, as I always do. And he lost most of his right arm in Tenerife. Um, So I guess you could say he beat the French and Spanish with, you know, one eye closed and one arm behind his back. He was also famous outside of the Royal Navy for his affair with Emma Hamilton, of course, um, meaning he became known for his personal life as much as his career. Uh, before the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, he sent out, obviously, his most famous signal to the fleet, England expects every man will do his duty, which is regularly quoted, um, partly because his men really respected and thought highly of him. He led from the front. A lot of them were very, very upset when he passed away. There have been poems written by sailors about the death of Nelson and stories and all sorts. Um, spoiler alert, obviously, he did die. Uh, and tragically, it was in the moment of his most kind of Glorious victory, I suppose, due to a shot from a French sniper on the Ready Tabla. Um, I guess the defeat of the Franco-Spanish fleet at Trafalgar kind of stopped chances of a French invasion. It ensured that the French and the Spanish couldn't come up against us at sea again. It ensured that we had British supremacy on the waves for over a century, really. Um, And after he died, his body was brought back to Greenwich and he was given 
one of the biggest state funerals going really at the time. People queued through the entire night <clears throat> to catch a glimpse of the coffin. Before that, there had been almost riots at what is now the old Royal Naval College in Greenwich, um, the Painted Hall, from people trying to get in to see see his body before it went off uh, up the river. By many of his superior officers, I guess, including John Jarvis, he was seen more as kind of an associate than a subordinate officer. He led by example, he taught his officers to think for themselves, he trusted them and he mentored them and he spent time getting to know them really and trusting them um, to do what they needed to do to achieve his end goal, I guess. Um, and this kind of became known as the Nelson Touch, a leadership style, um, which many try to sort of emulate now, actually. Um, I guess his success in battle, his, I don't know what word I want to use, humanity, I guess, as a leader, and his very, very scandalous private life meant that he did achieve notoriety more than any other naval officer really of the time and even now actually if you ask someone to name a famous naval officer Nelson is usually the one that people pick. Um, you've got monuments including you know, Trafalgar Square, you've got the Nelson Monument in Edinburgh, you've got mountains in New Zealand and cities named after him uh, and his legacy has continued really um, to this day uh, and he's become a huge huge part of British I guess, public myth and history. And that is probably the most potted history of Nelson I think I've ever given. Yeah. Um, I was very aware that I had a five minute. Five <laughs> you minute didn't minute. want to get run out of time before no, I, you get I to Trafalgar. Yeah, I have a habit of just talking for hours. <laughs> well, I love it. And um, that's where my vote is going. Um, any comments before we go to the Roastmaster General? I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, yeah. so do you know what? I've, I've seen his notes on this because this is the first one he did and it is pretty good. Go on, have at him. All right, Nelson's touch, or as anyone else calls it, turning left. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Impressive. <laughs> when your greatest achievement, as you said, is slowly sailing your vastly superior navy directly at a bunch of few Spaniards and Frenchmen, you've had a shite career. <laughs> Any confident maybe could that. have blown him out of the water. He wasn't fit to lick Michael de Reuter's boots. He's the only Englishman in history to ever unsuccessfully invade Tenerife. Um, <laughs> <laughs> even yeah. Big Gaz and the lads could manage it without getting their arms blown off. Uh, <laughs> he might have won the Battle of the Nile, but could he do the YMCA? Obviously not. Uh, and also... One of his big victories was the Battle of Copenhagen. Imagine defeat thinking that defeating the Danish is an achievement when you outnumber them and they don't know you're coming. That's like knocking over a sandcastle with a trebuchet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on a personal level, he was also a short arse. The sniper who nailed him deserves a pay rise for managing to hit such a small target. Um, he's probably the only officer in the period who actually looked up to Napoleon. Um, <laughs> And the high point, quite literally in his career, is when the IRA blew up his monument, which was ironic because they also carried disaster in the Battle of Trafalgar. Um, finally, Nelson's last words were, kiss me, Hardy. What a time to sexually harass a subordinate. Right as you die, no <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. What a bastard. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, anything, he's been looking forward to that all week. Honestly, I'm dying. <laughs> 
I can't I can't argue about the Tenerife thing though. It was an absolute disaster. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I think I vaguely remember um that George V was taken to look at the flags that were captured, the Navy flags that were still on the island in like the 1880s. And there's slight bafflement on the part of these little naval cadets on the uh, Bacante as to, as to how looking at this island, it defeated Nelson. Yeah, it, it's mad. My, I still think my, fav, my favourite little story about Tenerife is the fact that he kept in touch with the, the Spanish, what was his name, Gutierrez, afterwards and they traded cheese with each other and things it's a bit strange <laughs> just slightly he almost balls up copenhagen as well to be fair they did balls up copenhagen a lot of the ships ran aground because they put the boys in the wrong place <laughs> but that, was, that wasn't games. nelson ha- technically hardy went ahead and did that so uh, I'm, I'm putting the blame for that on hardy slightly they were probably all distracted also, by that mermaid thing probably also wasn't oh, he a war criminal in a sense of was it naples kate yeah, I was Naples, actually. Yeah. I'm actually surprised Naples didn't come up because he got, he kind mm. of got the nickname of the Butcher of Naples and ignored all of his orders and then got packed off home again. Um, I mean, but, we don't want to keep it dark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and often the story I love most about him is that he reviewed Westminster Abbey and decided he didn't want to be buried there because he'd had some research done and decided that in 600 years it might subside because it was on marshy ground. So that's why he wanted Wolsey's tomb under St Paul's, because he thought people would still be worshipping him 600 years and they should have somewhere to go. I mean, we are, to be fair. I yeah. mean, it's not 600 years yet, but you know, we're on our way Almost, <laughs> almost. That's, that's an ego. Way. Fair play. Yeah, for such a little man, he had a massive ego, which I quite like, because he shamelessly had that ego. And for anyone completely to be that full of themselves, surely. I mean, I mean, to be fair, that's why I've told my wife I'm not getting, I'm not getting buried in Westminster Abbey as well. So uh, <laughs> when it comes to ego for Nelson, Wellington really put it best, was because they were talking, well, they only met once, and yeah. he said that he was, uh, it was almost on his side, if I can call it a conversation, all about himself and really in a style so vain and so silly as to surprise yeah. and almost disgust me. Yeah, yeah, sounds about right. And then he found out who he was <laughs> and changed yeah. his mind completely. Excellent. Right, well, I'm still sorry. That was so, funny, Dorman, but you haven't swayed me away from Nelson. Uh, right, science is shit next. That means we're going to Kit. Kit, who have you ended up with and why have ended the greatest up. Britain? With Joseph Lister. Well, <laughs> people, people haven't heard of Joseph Lister, but let's go on, the, on John's criteria. Let's talk about the number of lives saved. Because forget Chel- Churchill. Uh, saved a couple of hundred million, that is nothing. Lister has saved billions. Billions. He is saving them at the moment, and he will continue to save them throughout the rest of history. Because Joseph Lister literally invented modern medicine. Let's start with, uh, with some basic statistics. We've got about 13 people in the pub right now. If we were born in the 1840s, five of us would already be dead. We wouldn't <laughs> have reached age five. We're currently in a pandemic that's killed about 44,000 people in the UK so far. That is nothing compared with Victorian England, where 30% of deaths were caused by infection. And here's the thing. A lot of them were caused by doctors. Between 1864 and 1866, surgeons typically lost 46% of patients. This is during the black period of surgery because they just invented invented anesthesia. And so they are taking their time because the patient obviously doesn't mind. And that means they're getting more infections and they're killing more people. 
a very common surgical report at the time was operation successful, but the patient died. And that's why Joseph Lister is so important. He combined medicine and science for the first time to stop this. Patients kept dying of sepsis. And at the time, the leading theory of infection uh, was called miasma theory. It was the idea that nasty air, particularly smells, spread disease. And this is why we actually built the London sewage system. It wasn't to get rid of the sewage. It was to get rid of the smell of sewage. But this was so dangerous that people were actually refusing operations because you were more likely to die on the table than, than, get, than get recover from your disease. Lister's own sister faced this problem, as I'll come to. And you have to imagine a Victorian surgical theatre as just that, a theatre. Before Joseph Lister, hundreds of people would come to watch surgeons operate. It was a freak show. Surgeons would wear the same smock, covered in blood, as a badge of honour while they were doing their operations. Nobody washed the table. Nobody washed their instruments. Post-operative infection was so normal, so common, it was actually seen as a sign of the body healing. People wanted to get gangrene. Surgeons like to talk about the good old surgical stink. And this is where we get to Lister. He was born in West Ham in London. Uh, he was a Quaker and he became a doctor, joining the Royal College of Surgeons aged 26. He went up to Edinburgh to work at the Royal Infirmary. And there we have the birth of modern medicine. People were just starting to use anaesthetics. Um, as I mentioned, we're in that black period and Lister decides to get to the real cutting edge and he moves to teach in Glasgow. And he gets this idea from a French scientist, Louis Pasteur. It was wild, it was crazy. It was that little invisible creatures called germs spread diseases. Now Lister's dad made microscopes. And so he figured that Pasteur might be onto something. And he decided to get radical. He decided that next time he operated, he would see what happened if he could kill off those germs. So he heard that carbolic acid had been used to get rid of smells in Carlisle. Carlisle famous for its smells, of course. And so he hopes that he can get some and he can apply it to the wound and kill off those germs. He manages to do so. He applies it to wounds, to instruments, to cuts, and it reduces the incidence of sepsis. He calls it an antiseptic. And he begins telling surgeons to clean their clothes, to wear fresh gowns, to sterilize their instruments. As I mentioned, between 1864 and 1866, 46% of patients were lost from surgery. In 1867 to 1870, Lister lost only 15%. By 1877, it had dropped the death rate to 5%. And this compares very, very favorably with the rest of the hospital, which is still riding high at around 50 to 60% of patient fatalities. Lister met with a wave of criticism. The Lancet, one of the top medical journals in the world, attacked him as a kook. Nobody believed germ theory and carbolic acid caused irritation. And so much like Americans and masks in a pandemic, they decided not to use it. But Lister was right. And his introduction for cleaning instruments has literally saved billions of lives. And it will keep doing so. You remember I mentioned Lister's sister earlier. She had breast cancer. They wouldn't operate because she would likely die until her brother had invented a way to kill the germs and allow safe operations. But that's not all. He showed it was uh, safe to leave things in the body so that you could have artificial hip replacements or stitches. He invented uh, dissolvable stitches with catgut. So if you've ever had that kind of surgery, you owe your life to Lister. He found new ways to set broken bones that would otherwise kill. He founded the British Institute of Preventative Medicine, today called the Lister Institute. He treated King Edward VII for appendicitis, who later said, I know that if it had not been for you and your work, I wouldn't be sitting here today. 
Thanks to Lister, we know that germs, killing germs saves lives. Humble to the end, he was incredibly embarrassed about the awards he won. He was president of the Royal Society. He was made a baron. Listerine mouthwash is named after him. So is Mount Lister in Antarctica. Time magazine listed germ theory as one of the sixth most important discovery of the past thousand years. And we're not talking about someone who fought in a war. We're not talking about someone who gave actors some witty lines. We are talking about someone we owe our future to as a species, humanity's future. And that is why you should vote for Joseph Lister. Oh, well done. He even slammed the notebook down as well at the end of that. I heard it. That was, that was actually just... <laughs> yeah, mic to do that, but never mind. <laughs> it sounded uh, like a mic drop. Yeah. There is a great book on him, by the way, called The Butchering Art by Lindsay Fitzharris, if anyone's interested. Yeah. Lindsay is the reason he's in the top 10, because she has many, many followers and she has been berating them all into voting for this man. She'll be on the podcast soon as well. Um, right. Anyone want to add any comments on Lister before we go to the Roastmaster General? That was excellent. I have to yeah. say that was really, really rather superb. But you, you, basically you're now left with Boris Johnson saying now wash your hands is your legacy. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Not a great thing. <laughs> yeah. You struggled with this one, Roastmaster General. Yeah. I mean, a bit of perspective. Both my parents are microbiologists. My brother is a microbiologist. And when I heard Lister, I still said who? I'm criminally underrated, I feel, uh, in a weird way. But at the same time, possibly overrated. So Lister pioneered antiseptic theory, as you mentioned, Pasteur, he probably stole the idea from, um, depending on how you read those letters that go back and forth between them. Uh, but he didn't really do that particularly well in that he was convinced that all he had to do was lots of chemicals will kill everything, which is kind of the same attitude that Donald Trump is taking to coronavirus. So I don't know if you really want your greatest Britain to have the same attitude to viruses as Donald Trump. Um, he used more acid to clean his surgeries than the Germans deployed in World War I to the point where they actually started melting bandages. Again, trial and error or fucking moron. We'll have to wait and see. <laughs> but I think his biggest crime is probably he was a fairly weak publicist. His ideas first became popular in Germany during the Franco-Prussian War. You can probably back me up on that. And when you compare what else we got out of that war, such as pasteurization, the machine gun, another excuse to laugh at the French, his contribution really is fairly negligible. <laughs> you can kind of guess why no one has heard of Joseph Lister. And as you mentioned, his name is emblazoned on the side of almost every bottle of mouthwash in the country because nothing screams antiseptic like cool mint. The greatest honor we can give Joseph Lister is to remind ourselves that there is a pathogenic bacterium named after, to him, named after him that probably matters in the world about as much. <laughs> it's, a val it's a valiant effort that yeah, yeah it's, the list is tough too <laughs> <laughs> right okay we have two more to go Lockie who did you end up with ah oh, well I didn't get the naturalist that I wanted but I've got something that's possibly even better actually I mean I, I, I've got my notes in front of me and I'm talking about a, a, a voyage from Plymouth um, that went off down into the South Atlantic and around Patagonia and, and beyond. And I feel like I've done this before, but I was talking about a pirate that time, <laughs> yeah. wasn't I? Um, you talking, there was, I think, more booze involved last time. Yeah, um, we've got a competent geologist. Uh, I want to sort of uh, maybe preempt Andy in, in, in the description. Yeah, a competent geologist <laughs> who is heading for a career in the church, um, who was off on this voyage. Um, 
Actually, that probably sells it a little bit short. Let's let's have another description of him. Uh, he revolutionized revolutionized the way we see the world and our place in it. Um, I, I'm talking about Charles Darwin, uh, of course. Now that that quote's quite nice. I mean, it's not my quote. That's from uh, the bloke I kind of wanted to be talking about, David Attenborough. Mm -hmm. Right, that's him speaking uh, about Darwin. Now, I think David Attenborough is an absolute inspiration. I'd love to speak about him. Um, but when we think about what inspired David Attenborough, there's a little chain uh, here. And growing up, he picked fossils, and, and the, the idea of evolution was never far away from him. Um, he uh, has, uh, watched a couple of interviews of Attenborough in kind of prep for this, uh, and he, he doesn't remember a time where he didn't know about the man. So to have that profound an effect on someone who's had a profound effect on others is quite something. The effect Darwin has, I think, from an inspiration point of view is quite something. I mean, my favourite museum in London, if not the world, is probably the Natural History Museum, uh, actually, as much as I do like you <coughs> at the Imperial War Museum. Um, no, right, the, the, the Natural <laughs> History Museum. <laughs> Let's leave that one behind. <laughs> yeah, come back to that. Um, and you, you, you walk into the, even before you sort of get into the, the, the exhibits at the Natural History Museum, uh, you walk in, it's amazing. The building is stunning. It's like a cathedral to science. That Waterhouse architecture is something else. You walk in uh, and whatever exhibits uh, are in there at the moment, whether it's a blue whale or you've been there when the, the, the dinosaur... Bring back the fucking dinosaur. Yeah, I know. But at the top of the steps, you've got Darwin's statue. Uh, there and then you go around the whole museum and you see everything all the wonderful things in there and then you come back and Darwin's at the top there and and and, and then you leave feeling enlightened and inspired and what a wonderful thing um so I mean it's it's important but I mean the guy himself showed some bravery during his lifetime I mean going on the voyage you know as a fairly young man um, to go exploring before a career in the church, to get on this boat, go around, uh, go off sailing for five years in some you know, hairy places uh, for a long time is, is brave enough. But then the ideas that gestate and he ends up uh, trying to explain to people uh, as well. Uh, uh, there was a story about him um, trying to discuss some of his ideas with a botanist in the 1840s and it felt like confessing a murder because essentially he's, he's challenging the Bible. Uh, and the book of Genesis in, in what he's saying, the, the old story of how we understand the world. Um, now, I guess that kind of leads into my, my main and most important point. Um, what is the biggest challenge facing us nowadays? I mean, it's, it's not the politics, so it's, it's climate change, surely, which is what makes the politics stuff even more frustrating, because we just don't have time for this shit. Mm -hmm. But the climate change stuff is real. If we are going to save the world, then we need to get into challenging theories that we've lived with for, for a long time. And one of them is uh, the Bible. Let's quote the Bible. Um, Genesis chapter 1, uh, 28. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the uh, fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth on the earth. And my goodness, haven't we done that uh, as people? You know, the world is on the cusp of ruination because of what we've done. If we are to retrieve it, we need to get into the business of standing up to authority, as he did, standing up to the established view of things, as he did, and doing it with evidence and with science, as he did. So we're going to be brave, like him. Uh, and I guess maybe my final thing was, you know, a couple of people have asked the question, how many people owe their lives to this person? 
well, we, if we do manage to save the world, then we might never know uh, how many people we owe their lives to Charles Darwin. But he's inspired inspirational people. Um, and that's why he should be the greatest Briton of all time. Lockie, I feel bad for you, man. David Attenborough finished 14th. He is officially the 14th greatest Briton and the highest of all TV people, actors, arts, whatever. Does that make I'm you going to say it now. Robbery. Absolute robbery. To, to, be, to be blunt about it, I think we should be grateful that he's not, because if he was, it would mean he would be no longer with us. Yeah, no, you know, I, 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 I suspect that that, that, would, that would be what elevates him. It's an interesting further. point, because if you look at that 2002 poll, Diana was second six years after her death. Mm. She was no, she's 90-odd in our list. Queen Mother, it was a year after her death, I think, or the year of her death, top 10, or very close to the top 10. Um, it's still way closer to the top 10 than Diana is now. But um, you're right in the as memory fades of certain people or people pass away. Uh, and Victoria Wood, I think, was disproportionately high because she's no longer with us. Mm. Um, she's way into the top 100, which I don't think she would be polling as the second greatest woman, British woman, to have graced screen, uh, theatre, um, television, if she was still alive. That sounds horrible, but I, I, just, I think you're right. There's something in that. Is, it, is anyone who works for film and TV will tell you Death is a great career move. Well, also, I think it's, it's quite good that he didn't make the top 10 because Andy's just about to rip the piss out, would be just about to rip the piss out of him as well. So we've avoided that. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, That's small blessing. Yeah. Have that, Charles Darwin. I mean, Darwin's another one I struggled to write about because he's just so fantastically one note and boring. Like, he's sort of the nickelback of the scientific community. And that's probably as damning as I can get. Like, of course, he was the one to realize we were descended from apes as he looks like a fucking gibbon. Um, he went on this essentially pub crawl tour across the Galapagos Islands, eating turtles as chasers for his drinks. Um, fairly ironic then that Lockie got him, given he is no better than Francis Drake in that regard. Um, and after his famous pub crawl, he showed the existence of evolution by taking an existing work by Alfred Russell Wallace, and boom, he evolved it into the origin of species, or plagiarized <laughs> it again. There's a common trend of a lot of these science people on this list. Um, and on the last note, imagine being the father of evolutionary theory and marrying your cousin. There's a lot of that that goes on in my part of the world. <laughs> yeah, I presume his children's webbed feet were the subject of a paper at some point. I don't know if it's commitment to his career or just being a bit odd, but on, a, on the whole, Darwin, a bit of an overrated weirdo. I have to give you as well, Kit owned up um, to Lister, and you wish you'd known. Go on, roast Lister one more time. Cause he Wait, what's this, what's this kid about Lister keeping women out of science? What's, what's this? Uh, yeah, so uh, List, Lister's predecessor was very much a fan of, of women um, becoming doctors. And there was a, a case uh, led by someone called Sophia Jex Blake, uh, who had formed the Edinburgh Seven, and they would be the first women to get university degrees in the UK, uh, and medical students at the University of Edinburgh. And Lister, he did not like that one little bit. Um, he was very much against women uh, being doctors. Boo Lister. Boo Lister. Bastard. Bastard. Swine. Do it Sean Bean style, Holmes. Bastard. Yeah, right, okay. 
let's move on. We have one more for you. Uh, and if you've been paying attention, you will not be surprised because Marcus Cribb is here. Marcus Cribb works at Apsley House. And Marcus Cribb has not shut up for the last two weeks on Twitter about the Duke of Wellington. So he is I, I the last one. That, I haven't shut up for quite a few years about Duke of Wellington. Yeah, this is true. You've amped it up the last couple of weeks, though. And you are here because Zach's run out of data and because you love Wellington to tell us why he is the greatest Briton of all time. I'm my posh man, Zach. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, there's no doubt it, keeping the best to last. So that's fair enough. Thank you. Um, Duke of Wellington, uh, he's got so much more to say, but we will hit the nail on the head and start with Waterloo. It wasn't uh, Nelson's Navy's, it was the Duke of Wellington, along with about 74,000 uh, Anglo-allied army with 50,000 Prussians that finally defeated the Corsican tyrant and uh, kept Britain free. Uh, it was the biggest success uh, and end of an era of any British general uh, to that age. And uh, everything then uh, in Britain afterwards is named after him and his success from Waterloo Bridge to uh, Wellington in New Zealand, uh, his impact has been uh, astronomical. He went on to become a prime minister, not once, but twice, leading very successful governments. It's thanks to uh, his time in the uh, ministry and uh, working closely with Robert Peel that we have not only a metropolitan police force, but the eligibility for many of the people here to vote because of the Catholic Emancipation Act, opening up um, proper democracy and his insights, even though being a, a born uh, Protestant in Ireland, his insights into uh, some freedoms of his um, Catholic uh, friends. Going back, he had humble origins uh, and you could say uh, he's the, uh, the greatest Briton. A professor, David Candeline, calls him the last great Englishman, but he was born in, um, in Dublin in 1769. Uh, he, did never, he did not say, um, though a man may be born in a stable, it may make him a horse. Uh, and he was quite proud of his heritage, uh, though he moved to uh, Britain at a relatively young age for um, schooling. Uh, he went on to have a really successful uh, military and political career. And during the uh, dark times with Bonaparte ruling the continent, uh, the shining light really was his constant uh, successes in uh, Spain and Portugal through the Peninsula War. During that time, uh, he fought um, around 40 um, battles and never lost a pitch battle and only um, failed to uh, storm a couple of uh, towns. He recognised his own failings and uh, realised that sieges were his weak points. He put harsh discipline on his troops uh, when looting and pillaging was common and uh, increased the Provo Corps. Uh, he was not without sympathy for the common soldier. Though he may have called them the scum of the earth, he said, what fine gentlemen we have made of them. And he wept at the sight of the scenes of the sieges and of Waterloo itself. He was um, a man after all, and he um, swore off um, battle after Waterloo, saying he's seen enough. He went on to dedicate his time not only to politics, reforming the army and the navy, but actually to dedicate himself to art, music, and uh, culture, uh, especially at Apsley House, where opera performances were held, dinners with nearly every single head of state of Europe. Alexand uh, Tsar Alexander um, called him the conqueror of the world's conqueror, a 
And on his funeral in 1852, it was probably the largest funeral uh, held and to date. Proportionally, um, for the population, almost a million um, people turned out to see his funeral, which was arranged by Prince Albert. Queen Victoria called the country's loss at his death irreparable and said he was the greatest man this country ever produced and the most devoted and loyal subject and the staunchest support of the crown ever had. His legacy lives on to today with his art, his reforms, and ironically, the Wellington boots, though there is no connection uh, to a beef dish named uh, after him. He is, without a doubt, uh, one of the most impacting Britons uh, upon the 1800s and uh, to this day he remains one of the greatest Britons that ever lived. Uh, I just, I'm going to give the Roastmaster a head start by saying, Marcus, humble beginnings. Eton College does not scream humble beginnings to me. One year. One year. He still went to Eton. Uh, right. Anyone else on Wellington before we let the Roastmaster in? Yeah, because uh, we, we, we did him a few weeks ago, didn't we, as a great, the greatest commander or something like that. And I was quite impressed with him and when I was reading about him. And then I read that he, he was a Tory prime minister as, as one of the lefties in the room that you identified earlier. I suddenly <laughs> went off him then. He probably started imposing, you know, people had to prove they've got one leg before they're allowed in the workhouse or something like that. Yeah, also, I'd, I'd maybe kind of contest the idea of proper democracy in 1829. Um, yeah. I'd say every woman might disagree with that, as well as maybe like 60% of men. Yeah, um, which was still the same almost, you know, First World War time, wasn't it? Uh, you had a Reform Act in the 1860s, which enfranchised another 30% of men or so. Um, but, yeah, it's still not. Uh, my three pence on Wellington. One, he did get lucky with what happened with the West Indies and then being sent to India instead. Two, he kept his promises because he obviously promised to marry Kitty. But then he effectively broke the promises by cheating on her constantly. I think it was, I can't think of the mistress's name now. It's the one all the posh guys went to, Grassini, and it became a big scandal. Also, Grassini, who also slept with Napoleon, and said that Wellington was more vigorous. Point, point <laughs> to Wellington. Oi, oi. <laughs> so, to be entirely fair, if he was a Tory prime minister, it's obligatory to have a mistress. Come on, you know, let's, so let's not quibble over it. The fidelity of everybody on this uh, <laughs> nomination list, and we're going to start to get into trouble. Roastmaster. Where did you get to of Wellington? Oh, humble beginnings, because he's Irish. Is that it, Marcus? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) He must have lied in his Eton interview. Yeah, exactly. All right, so here we have another example of an Englishman who spent the bulk of his life on a long holiday in Spain telling the locals they were bad at their jobs and being racist to Europeans. Um, (laughs) Wellington would have absolutely voted for Brexit on the back of that. Um, I never knew you could make a successful military career out of standing slightly behind the ridge line, but here we are. There are, <laughs> there are numerous commanders who were arguably better than them, but if only they had understood contour lines, history would have been so different. Um, and on another note, the last person to rely so heavily on Germans carrying his success against the French was probably Adolf Hitler, and at least he owned up to it. Um, <laughs> And also, using German against the French is cheating at the best of times. Um, <laughs> Kitty Packenham. Kitty Packenham rejected him, and then he decided to go off on his military career and return in uniform and seduce her. 
So the Duke of Wellington is the fucking Gaston of military history. To be honest, <laughs> I kind of wish he'd been thrown <laughs> off the defences of Badajoz. It would have given him something to cry about. Uh, like, oh, we must have men. <laughs> <laughs> And he has that immortal quote, nothing except a battle lost can be half as melancholy as a battle won. How annoyed would you be as a soldier if your officer said that? We've just won this triumphant victory. Oh, I'm a bit sad. I've compiled a list of things sadder than a battle won. Bambi, the Irish potato famine, the collapse of the Maratha Confederacy in India, which he arguably caused, Bubba's death in Forrest Gump, Marshall Blucher's history of horse ownership, Marshall Ney's history of horse ownership. <laughs> Reaching for a multi-pack of crisps and realizing it's actually empty. And I hate that. Right? And worst of all, the death of his own wife. Like, talk about a kick in the teeth for Kitty. Honey, don't go. I'll miss you so much. I'll be devastated. Am I a battle won or a battle lost, Arthur? Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> but he is Irish, so he gets a pass. <laughs> oh, Kate. Nelson or Wellington? Uh, well, actually, Marcus and I did a really, really good uh, debate on this <laughs> a few weeks ago for a good, I think, almost three hours. So. <laughs> yeah, it's not three and a half, I think, the audience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm obviously going to say Nelson. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, well, after three and a half hours, to be fair, Nelson didn't stand a job. Uh. <laughs> what about Hague or Wellington? Yeah, Lockie's Lockie thinks. Hey, um, <laughs> go on, James. Yeah, it, it, that's interesting because obviously Haig is always known as a butcher. And... Not always. Are you? Apart from this dick that I was arguing with on Twitter today. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, it wasn't me. Haig was at the bottom of the hill, and Wellington was at the top. <sighs> but Haig's unfortunately been left with this reputation of being the butcher. Maybe it's um, misunderstood and he was actually like an amateur butcher in the same way that Churchill <laughs> built walls. Massive enthusiasm for me. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, Haig's fighting be... an uphill bloody battle there always. He will always be, unfortunately, against the Duke of Wellington. Let's, one minute on Haig. Go on. Uh, he, he took the British army from a poorly performing, medium-sized force to the point where you can legitimately argue, and this is probably the only point in world history where you can, you can at least make a reasonable argument that the British army was the most powerful army in the world. Just like Wellington, then. <laughs> yeah, actually, okay. that's what, they both did similar. Yeah, hoiking, hoiking a hat full of, of Dutch and Germans, and you, you, you might have a, an argument, but <laughs> it's, it's the British Empire's army that he turns into, you know, a, 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 a colonial police force expanded too fast and de-skilled into this engine of death, which breaks what had been the previously strongest army in the world, the German army. All right, that's not nothing. But, but to, to be fair, I'm not knocking you here, Lockie. I, I agree with right. some of your points about Haig, but also Wellington did kind of do the same, and also he turned the Portuguese into an army that was to be feared as well by the French. And to be fair, the French was the strongest army in Europe at the time, in the world, arguably, even though they never learned to go into line was, was, rather was than the column. the French army but... that took to the field at Waterloo the strongest army in the world? But, yeah, but Hay gave the Portuguese a chance as well. So, you know, there's stuff to be said for that. We won't say what happened. But gave <laughs> I was going to say, it didn't end well, though, did it? <laughs> Wellington and Blücher combined sort of radically outnumbered Napoleon at Waterloo, and Napoleon almost won even then. If Grouchy had marched to Waterloo, he might have had a chance. You know, Haig wasn't even the best general in the First World War for the British. 
What? And to be fair, Wellington's army at Waterloo, <laughs> barely any... I can't remember the exact number, but only a certain percentage were Peninsula War veterans. The rest were pretty much green troops, and then you had the Dutch. It was about the Dutch are going to hate me, but... Of his 30% British... Yeah, Hague was probably responsible for the deaths of more Frenchmen, and he was on the same side as them. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's true. <laughs> Anything else, Roastmaster? No, I'm good. I'm tapped out. No, <laughs> I'll chuck this in for you. Imagine Hague, Lockie, when the best thing you ever did was fuck off out of the way and let a Frenchman lead your army. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, <laughs> political expediency. Oh, uh, yeah, I just, we all know that was Lloyd George's fault. And can we just all celebrate the fact that that bastard was nowhere near the top 10? In fact, he got beaten by Judy Dench. <laughs> uh, I'm sure lots of people would like that. <laughs> right. For Lloyd George to be beaten by Judy Dench. Lloyd, <laughs> <laughs> what goes on in your head? <laughs> I said lots of people, not me. Bloody, bloody Islington weirdos. Yeah, I'm going to go around the room, guys, and I'm going to get you to name, firstly, your, who you're voting for. Some of you, I think it is the person that you've advocated for tonight. Some of you, maybe not. Um, and if you could still vote out of anyone at all, who would you vote for? It doesn't matter if they haven't made the top ten. So, Marcus, I think we'll go first to you, because I think your answer is the same for both of them. Yeah, I, I would always uh, go with Wellington. Though I like to put like a nomination in for somebody like uh, Percy Hobart, who created the funnies during World War Two, because uh, he never gets on any lists. So a bit of World War Two uh, boffins in there occasionally. Excellent, Kit. Uh, well, I would have gone for Michael Faraday, but he didn't make the top ten, sadly. I believe um, he is about sixteenth, seventeenth. I can live with. I can live with that. I'm quite happy with that. Um, I'll probably go for Nelson because my family's all Navy, so. Kate? Uh, obviously, I would have gone for Nelson. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if I couldn't go for Nelson, I'd probably go for Alan Turing. I thought you were going to say Alan Shearer then. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm a massive, <laughs> massive secret. That's a second fan. choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, d- despite my terrible argument for him. <laughs> <laughs> James, you didn't even convince yourself to vote for Turing. Who would you vote for? Um, he's outside top 10, but I was going to vote for Attenborough if he'd managed to get the top 10. Aww. Otherwise. I'm still tossing up between three choices right now. Wellington, Nelson, and the Queen. So, <laughs> Marcus, if you had to vote for a woman... Sorry, I was doing something else. <laughs> 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 Were you frantically you thinking what women to vote for? Yeah. Multitasking here, I don't have my aide to camp. If I had to vote for a woman, uh, Queen Elizabeth II, without doubt. Kit, if you had to vote for a woman? Uh, if I had to vote for a woman? Um, I, I, yeah, probably Elizabeth II. Lockie? Florence Nightingale, I think. Yeah, or Mary Seacole. Oh, yeah, they're good. Mm. <laughs> yes, thank you, because I was about to go on a rant then. You know what? She, it's probably my fault because she didn't come onto the nomination list till near the end when someone nominated her because I forgot her. And she's about 32nd, I think, so she just missed the initial cut. Lockie, Haig or Attenborough? Uh, Attenborough, I think. I think because it's more than just kind of a love for science. There's also just joy in what he does. So, yeah, I've got a lot of love for him. Alina? Don't hate me, but Beth is going to love me. Yes, Shakespeare. You're such an arse kisser. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? I do. I love Shakespeare, and there are some absolutely stonking players of his. And I know you don't like him, but, you know. I don't. I'm just saying none of his stuff yeah, is... You're my best friend. Christopher Marlowe. 
Sorry, Alex, you're out. Best money, best friend. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. You can do all the editing on the podcast from now on. You can have that. <laughs> Shit. Elena, if it was a bird, would it be Queen Elizabeth II? Oh, of course it would be. She is absolutely epic. Yeah, she is. I love her. Um, mine would be Nelson, and if it was a, had to be a woman, it would be Elizabeth II. John? I, I would, if it weren't going to be Winston Churchill, then it would have to be Lister, uh, partly because when I was making my pitch for uh, Churchill not having seen the final list, I had to edit out the phrase, other than someone like Joseph Lister who saved millions. Um, so I think it'd be him. If it were a, a woman, um, you know, because of my last book, I'm kind of partial to Elizabeth I. Yeah. See, I, I didn't get why she got so many votes. She's in the top 20. Um, but then that might be because I did an hour-long podcast with Kate Williams earlier about what a bitch she was to Mary, Queen of Scots. So might have had something to do with it. Um, apart from Tilbury, though, is it just the resilience? Uh, I think it was in the same way that Churchill said, OK, we're not going to give in. Now, she did have... Uh, she came to the throne not wanting to repeat her father's mistakes of getting into expensive wars that caused them to debase crown currency and, and a lot of uh, economic disruption, uh, all in 1982 maybe. But uh, she did end up getting into far more wars than Henry VIII got into. Um, but she also protected the independence of the empire of the, the islands at a time when uh, there was a lot of pressure from uh, a number of camps. Just out of interest, did you come anywhere near in your War Queen's book putting Eleanor of Aquitaine in? We actually looked at putting in Eleanor of Aquitaine, uh, Marguerite d'Anjou, and, and yeah. one or two other Britons, but we had so many Britons between Boudicca, uh, Elizabeth I, uh, and Thatcher, well, I say so many, three out of, of 13 chapters, that we uh, did not want to keep, mm. keep piling on. Eleanor, actually, she got... A massive amount of votes, I think. She is 20th on the list. So why would that be? You know, she's, uh, well, the, the other part of it is that she was not actually leading. We, we focused on women who led nations in wartime. Yeah. That, that narrowed the criteria. Isabella of Spain was kind of, uh, that was sort of a joint venture. Holmes. Um, I would go for, well, obviously I'd go for the Unknown Warrior. But, um, if I can't, I'm, I'm not that enamoured with any in the top 10. They're sort of broadly what you think they would be. But I would go for... Um, Clement Attlee um, started the NHS. Um, he didn't found the welfare state. There was welfare state was sort of semi-introduced by the Liberals earlier on, but I think he put it in the in the shape that everyone wanted it to be. Um, so I'd go for him. Yeah, I I believe he's about twenty eighth or twenty ninth on the list. Johnny, I love Lister. Lister is is a phenomenally good argument. Um, and I, I think I think needs needs to be up there just because he's un, he's unsung and not not particularly well known about. And it would be really nice if he won, just because more people would find out about him. Um, you're all wrong because obviously David Bowie should win this, but we'll we'll, we'll kind of move on from there. Um, and if if we need a woman, Emmeline Pankhurst. Yep. Or Lady Rhonda. You fell in love with her a bit. Lady Rhonda, yeah. Lady Rhonda was, was tremendous. I would have actually remembered, but I couldn't remember her, her name. So that was that was going to be that was going to be my my lady choice. Yeah, she was Eddie tremendous. She was very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Clive. I think of men, I would have gone for Nye Bevan for very many, much the same reasons that Holmes went for Attlee. But I think that Bevan was far more the intellectual leader behind all of those reforms. For a woman, Jenny Lee probably stands out more than anyone else. 
Um, character in <coughs> Call the Midwife? No. Okay. <laughs> Among Jenny other Lee. things, she was my Bevan's wife. Ah. But <laughs> on, on on the list of people put forward, they're pretty ropey bunch. And actually, if that's the best Britain can come up with, it's a bit disgraceful. But I suppose Charles Darwin has probably done more than anyone to change the face of the earth and the way in which we think about it. Beth? Um, well, obviously, I'd stick with Shakespeare. None of you can change my mind. I mean, Unknown Warriors, close second, but it would definitely be Shakespeare for me. Um, I'd be stuck to pick for a woman. Um, I've got two that I'd choose between probably either Millicent Fawcett for her work with women's suffrage or Boudicca because she kicked the Romans' asses until she yeah. was captured, basically. But yeah, who doesn't love a warrior queen? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and have, dormant, having absolutely trashed everybody on the list, <laughs> who would you pick? Um, it's a tough one. Either be probably Lister. Um, I mean, he's he's a difficult one to argue against. Um, the unknown warrior would be probably a close second. I think of somewhere of, of those two. Um, and a woman. And probably Rosalind Franklin. Mm -hmm. She's on the top hundred. So we actually ended up with nearly three hundred nominations. Uh, David Bowie was twenty six. Johnny. Not bad. Not bad. Clement twenty eight. Conan Doyle was 32nd. Boudicca came in at 33. Uh, Holmes, Dyer and Clive. You'll all be thrilled to know that Margaret Thatcher was number 36. One what? bites ahead of Oliver Cromwell. Below David Bowie, it's fine. Mary <laughs> <laughs> was, was only one vote behind Queen Victoria. Alan Rickman was number 41. Uh, the Alex, Alex where, where did um, Officer Crabtree come? <laughs> <laughs> Always fine, brilliant work behind the lines in the Second World War. Alex Guinness, 52nd. Uh, Maggie Smith, 50. Ada Lovelace was 43rd. A lot of women just missed that cut for the top 30. Uh, so, in from 30 to 50, we lost Boudicca, Margaret Thatcher, Victoria, Mary Seacole, Ada Lovelace, Emily Bronte, the Queen Mother, Audrey Hepburn, Maggie Smith, uh, Helen Mirren, Queen Mary, Charles Dickens was number 60, Margaret, Margaret of Anjou was 63rd, the highest Beatle was 66, which is way too high even still for me, Sterling Moss came in at 67, uh, the top sporting one, 54 was George V, basically because I threatened people, top sporting <laughs> one, have a guess at who it was, coming in at number 47. Johnny Wilkinson. <coughs> Probably Hamilton. No, look. Bobby Moore. Tony Blackburn. Sorry, what? Roger Bannister. Uh, okay. Probably more came Sterling Moss at 67. Julie Andrews finished one place behind Jane Austen. Ian McKellen, 70th. Alex Ferguson, 71st. Shockingly, T. Lawrence was only 72nd, but he was in a military category with uh, the Duke of Wellington. He got quite a lot of traction, thanks to Marcus. Uh, Vera Lynn... Got a late boost to 77th because she died while the voting was going on, bearing out uh, Johnny's point. Amy career Bob, boost. 81. Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the internet, 82nd. David Lloyd George, 85th. One place ahead of Banksy and one behind Ranoff Fines. Prince uh, Albert, 89. Having just read a biography of him, God, I, I would like to roast him. Uh, no, top religious person was Bede. Huh. Oh, venerable, venerable, venerable yeah. bead. Venerable. Yeah. Mm. 96. 
uh, Elizabeth Woodall, 99, and at number 100, James Watt. Steve Redgrave just missed out on the top 100, H.G. Wells, Charlie Chaplin, Elizabeth Taylor, Douglas Bader. Jeffrey Chaucer was very low. Um, Duke of Marlborough was 111th. William Wallace was 112th. Anne Boleyn, 114th. Uh, W.G. Grace was in there. Bobby Robson. Jimmy Mallet. No, Jimmy <laughs> Mallet. No, William, William the Marshal. Johnny, if you didn't nominate and they didn't make it in. Were the Chuckle Brothers separately or together? <laughs> <laughs> and Wait, so no, like, the last I, of the I people. I can't believe there's not Eddie the Eagle in there. Yeah, oh, Richard yeah. Attenborough, 175. Harold Macmillan, 177. Prince Philip came in at 178. Yeah. Kitchener was 189. Idris Elba, 194. Lady Rhonda came in at 195. Uh, Noel wow. Shabazz, 201. No, 200. Uh, Virginia Woolf. God knows why, 204. Um, God, if you're talking about torture from school days. Jack Cornwell came in at 220. Uh, I was looking to see if I could find Rosalind Franklin, but I think she's quite a bit higher and I've missed her. Uh, and coming in last of the people that were nominated, because bear in mind that anybody could be nominated, was Stan Laurel. With one single vote, but it was a vote. Lots of people didn't me. Oh. So, guys, Spice Girls, not one of them, John, in the top 100. <laughs> Y'all have got no culture there. Votes were obviously split. <laughs> yeah. Not even S Club 7. Okay, right. We will reconvene next week, some of us, all of us, who knows. Uh, we will talk out our top 10 biggest twats in history because it's far more fun taking the mickey out of people than it is talking about how great they were, as well as announcing this. Yeah, Dorman's nodding, so he's had a great time tonight. Uh, so we will see you then. Join us over the weekend. Uh, it was a boys' weekend last weekend. This weekend, the girls are taking over. Tomorrow, we have Kate Williams doing a Life of Mary, Queen of Scots. And on Sunday, Bethany Hughes is <coughs> trying not to make us all massively jealous about her new program on the Odyssey that's on, which basically consisted of her sunning herself around Greek islands right before um, COVID hit. So instead of being charming sort of travel history thing um she's ended up being the most hated woman in britain because everyone is not allowed to leave their house <laughs> while it's on uh, for which she apologizes consistently throughout the entire interview <laughs> planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.